0: In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapter 2 through chapter 6, verse 8.
1: In chapter 10, we have a vision of God's glory. In verse 2, you have the coals of fire again between the cherubim, which is an interesting parallel. You can go through this on your own. They also had four faces in verse 14. Except we don't have one of a man, we have, or ox, we have a cherub, whatever that is. A face like a face of a man, a lion, and an eagle. Whatever that means. So we can go on here. But again, verse 21, four faces apiece, four wings, and so on. Daniel chapter 7, you can put in your notes. will in the interest of time, pop right over to Revelation 4. John is again, like the others, treated to a vision of the throne of God. The seven letters, seven churches are now behind us. We go to Metatauta, chapter 4, verse 1. I looked, behold, a door was open in heaven. The first voice I heard was, was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me. Come up here, and so on. Verse 6, and before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. By the way, the full of eyes is also the Old Testament. I forgot to pull that out. The first living creature was like a lion. The second like a, the living creature was like a calf or an ox, if you will. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them, had six wings. That's like Isaiah, isn't it? About him. And they were full of eyes within, and they rest not. They are not saying, Holy, Holy, Holy. There's the three holies again. Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And when these living creatures give glory and honor, and thanks to him who is seated on the throne and liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fell down before him that is seated upon the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast down their thrones, and so on it goes. Twenty-four. It's interesting. One thing, I was going to ask it as a question. I'll just give you the answer. If you notice the Old Testament... Between Ezekiel and Isaiah and Daniel and uh, Revelation, you'll see a lot of similarities, some differences. Especially Daniel 7 and 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 Ancient of Days and all, that's very similar to Revelation 4. But there's one thing that occurs only in the New Testament. That's the 24 elders. They're They're invisible in the Old Testament. And there's lots of other reasons why most scholars lean to the idea that those 24 elders, who rep- the only place 24 occurs is the priesthood in 24 courses. They are kings and priests, and the only people who are kings and priests are the church. And so many scholars, not all, but many scholars, ascribe to the 24 elders the church. And what's interesting is the church is not in the Old Testament according to Ephesians 3, and it's interesting that the 24 elders are invisible in, in, the, in the visions of Daniel, Ezekiel, and Isaiah, which tend to, not a proof, but it tends to be seen that way. What I'd like to do... I'd like to share with you a few th- possibilities about the throne of God. And it's easier to do with uh, graphics. We'll start by talking a little bit about the tabernacle. These are in feet here to give you a rough perspective. It hangs on how big a cubit is. A cubit was somewhere between 14 and 25 inches, depending on what authorities. We generally treat it as about 18 inches. And if so, the tra- tabernacle was a, a, an enclosure about 75 feet on the side and 150 feet long. Inside of which, as you entered the one gate, Jesus made a... Cl- Everything in the tabernacle, every detail, speaks of the person of Jesus Christ. I am the door. Anyone that comes any the other way is a thief and a robber. The brazen altar is the place of sacrifice. The brazen altar, sacrifice. After you sacrificed, you washed in the labor. The labor represents the word of God. Now we are clean through the washing of the water by the word. You're washed two ways. You're washed once judicially. It's interesting that in, in, we presently are washed by the word. In Revelation, we see the glassy sea where the saints are standing on it. So the Holy Spirit's dealing with a pun. Here we wash on it, there we stand on it, in either case it's the word of God. But as you go forward to the tabernacle proper, that's this portable building made of vertical planks that were made of acacia wood wrapped with gold and then then, uh, horizontal poles giving it rigidity. You had roughly a 15 by 45 foot portable building. Covered with four different coats of things, but I won't get into that here. As you entered this, if you were a priest, on the right you saw the table of showbread, two piles, six each, that's 12 loaves of bread changed every Shabbat. On the left you had the, it says candlestick, that's unfortunate. I meant to put uh, lampstand, but the menorah, the, uh, the oil sore, uh, lit uh, source of illumination, built of a solid piece of gold, a main branch, and say, I am the vine, you are the branches, Jesus says, I am the light of the world, I am the bread of life, and so on. The altar of incense. The altar of incense. That's uh, about a three-foot-high thing where they burn incense. Incense was analogous. or spoke of prayers, prayers of intercession. It's also kind of interesting that when Elijah, there's a legend when Elijah uh, was translated, his mantle, his cloak, his power and authority deferred to Elisha. And Elisha, of course, uh, had his mantle. When Elisha died, we understand that the mantle uh, was put in the, uh, stored inside of this three-foot-high Appliance called the uh, Golden Altar. We also know, interestingly enough, the one link I've been able to establish on this strange legend I'm tracking down is that the Golden Altar was available in Herod's temple. The Ark of the Covenant was, but the Golden Altar was, interestingly enough. When Zechariah is officiating as a priest, we discover that, of course, he was in the holy place. And uh, the story is is that he was instructed and did take the mantle of Elijah out of the altar of incense. And the story would have it that John the Baptist was wearing the mantle of Elijah. Which puts a whole different complexion on the statement of Jesus Christ. is That he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. He actually was wearing Elijah's mantle. That's why when in John chapter 2, is it two or one anyway, when chapter 2, when they... Um, there was, he, was, he drew such a crowd... That uh, the temple authorities had to send an inquisition to find out what was going on. Bear in mind, you know, that's a, a day's walk from Jerusalem to Jericho, in the, in the Jordan where John was baptized. That's a long way to go, where the temple authorities were having attendance problems. Uh, they wanted to find out what was going on. That may be part of the reason. Anyway. The tabernacle speaks of the throne of God. Here's the, the Holy of Holies, the, the Ark of the Covenant. The lid had the two cherubim. God is spoken of as an idiom of God. He's spoken of, he that dwelleth between the cherubims. The Shekinah glory actually entered. When Solomon dedicated his temple, the Shekinah glory entered the temple. The priest couldn't even get in there for a while. It was so thick and, and heavy. So that's the guts. That's the center of the camp of Israel. Let's talk a little further about the camp of Israel. The tabernacle was at the center of the camp. And it, the opening of the tabernacle faced east. We had Moses and Aaron and the priests to the east side. Okay, to the south side, the Kohathites, then the Gershonites, then the Marites. These three families of the Levites had specific duties having to do with the tabernacle. And I'll come to that in a little bit. But the main point is, in the center we had the tabernacle and the tribe of Levi, Right? Around the camp, you had the 12 tribes. Now, right away, you need to, for those of you that may be new to this, I'll point out, how can you take the Levites out and still get 12? I thought there's 12 tribes. No, there's really 13. That's the rub. Ephraim and Manasseh, together were the tribe of Joseph. So if you want 12, you can lump those two together and have 12 counting Levi. For the order of March and for certain, several other purposes... There's about 10 times the 12 tribes are listed in the Bible. Sometimes you count one, sometimes not. Sometimes you count Levi, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you count Dan, sometimes... The point is, how can you always get 12? Well, because you can play games with Ephraim and Manasseh. You follow me? There's actually an alphabet of 13 to play with, if I may put it that way. Follow me? Okay. Now, the point I'm getting at is, is that when they camped, they grouped themselves, the 12 tribes grouped themselves in camps of three tribes each. The tribe of Judah, the tribe of Issachar, and the tribe of Zebulun were instructed to camp together, and this collection of three tribes were to rally around the tribal standard of Judah. Each of the 12 tribes has a standard. Each of the 12 tribes had a staff with a standard. The eastern group of Issachar, Judah, and Zebulun would rally around the ensign of Judah, which was a lion, and they would camp here. Over to the west, we had Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. And they would rally around Reuben. And they were known collectively as the camp of Reuben. To the west, we had Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. And they would rally around the tribal standard of Joseph, or Ephraim, which was an ox. And to the north, we had Naphtali, Dan, and Asher. They were known as the camp of Dan, and they'd rally around. And it had different symbols. But at one time, the dominant one was an eagle. Now, what makes this... Provocative, if you're probably way ahead of me, is as you watch the camp of Israel assemble and as they move through the wilderness, when they laid out, they put, set up the tabernacle, they'd mark out that space for the Levites, and then to the north, south, east, and west, these camps, groups of three tribes each, would encamp on their respective points of the compass. But they'd rally around a lion, a man, an ox, and an eagle. And you don't have to be very mystical to sit back and say, Whoa! What's going on here? They, either knowingly or unknowingly, I have no idea, when they were encamped as God instructed, they became, in some sense, a model, an allegory of the throne of God. Who is in the middle? The tabernacle, which speaks, of course, directly of Jesus Christ. By the way, the tabernacle itself rested on that is, the building itself, rested on silver sockets. Silver Levitically speaks of blood, right? The tabernacle rested on the blood of Christ. That's where you and I rest, on the blood. You you say, gee, that's kind of like puns. Yes, it is. But I want you to be sensitive to just how far the Holy Spirit has gone to engineer this book, this Bible. Every detail, every number, every place, every material, every subtlety in the text is thereby designed by the Holy Spirit. And every aspect of it speaks, directly or indirectly, on the person of Jesus Christ. The Word of God. That's why, he's, that's why John opens his Gospel. That's what God calls him. The Word of God. The Word of God. He became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we beheld His glory. We inspected His glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father. Okay, you so see, that's pretty interesting. First of all, you see why I bring this up with a vision of the throne of God so far. Okay? You say, gee, that's interesting. We have a cherubim with four faces, right? A lion, a man, an ox, and an eagle, right? Okay. We won't take too much time here on this one. But when we study the four Gospels, we're struck with the fact that they're very, they also are very specifically designed. Matthew was a Levi. His preoccupation was that Jesus Christ was the Messiah of Israel, Yeshua HaMashiach. He presents him as a Messiah. He starts his genealogy from Abraham. Why would he go any earlier as a Jew? And takes it through David and through the royal line, through Solomon down, through the legal line, down to Jesus Christ to show that he was heir to the throne of David. Okay. Now, Mark is interested in Jesus Christ as the servant. You don't care about the pedigree of a servant. Mark's the only gospel without a genealogy. There is a genealogy of sorts, and John will come to that. So the symbol, the classical symbol of servant of, of, of service is an ox, right? And he, his whole presentation is, is that way. That's the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Luke. Luke was a physician. He's interested in Christ's humanity. He starts with the first man, Adam. Takes his genealogy from Adam. Yes, he gets to David, but he takes a left turn. He doesn't go through Solomon, he goes through Nathan. Why? Because he goes down the line that's Mary, the bloodline of Jesus Christ. Also of the house of David, but not the royal line. Luke is interested in Jesus Christ as the Son of Man. What symbol would you use of Luke? The man. Starts his genealogy with Adam, the bloodline, and so forth. D- John's a totally different kind of guy. He presents Jesus Christ unabashedly as the Son of God, his deity. Symbol of the eagle. Uh, his, his genealogy is the preexistent one. The first three verses of the Gospel of John is the genealogy of a preexistent human uh, person. Matthew talks about what Jesus said. Mark, what he did. Luke, what he felt. John, who he was. Matthew wrote to the Jew, Mark the Roman, Luke the Greek, John to the church. It's interesting, the first miracle, leper cleansed, that to a Jew is deals with sin. To the Gentile, in both cases, Luke and Mark, it's uh, demon expelled. John, water turned to wine. What a mystical way to begin. The end, uh, Ma- Matthew, of course, being a Jew, ends with a resurrection. Mark. The ascension, Luke, the promise of the Spirit, because he leads right into Acts, Volume 2 of the two-volume trial documents for Paul's defense in Rome that uh, Luke put together. And then John, we have the promise of his return, because he leads, of course, what? To Revelation. And on it goes, and you get into more of this sort of thing. I didn't want to get into the whole gospel story other than point out, here again, it's not contrived to view these four dimensions, aspects, of Jesus Christ, presented by the Gospels in quadraphonic, if I can use that term, as the lion, the ox, the man, and the eagle. Kind of interesting, isn't it? In Numbers chapter two, of course, we it mentions numbers. We got, I mean, it, they're literally numbered. Uh, we have the Levites and the three families. Remember the Merorites, Koathites, Gershonites. Not many of those. Six, eight thousand each, something like that. Sixty-two hundred, six eighty-six. The, the numbers: sixty-two hundred Demerites, eighty-six hundred of uh, Kohathites, and seventy-five hundred Gershonites. See collectively speaking they 're small compared to the these camps we 're talking about right well they 're going to be in the middle aren 't they and By the way, the Marorites had responsibility for the structural components, the Koethites, the internal equipment, and the Gershonites, the external coverings. so these different families were allocated responsibility when they took the tabernacle down they took off the Gershonites took off the external coverings, the Merorites took the structural components, the plain, you know, the tabernacle proper and what have you, and the and the limit, and the, uh, the fence around it. And then, of course, the Goethites took the eternal equipment, the table of showbread, and so forth. So that's the Levites. But remember, we took the 12 tribes and organized them in four camps, right? When you go through Numbers chapter 2, it takes the trouble of telling you how many are in each tribe, right? When you read that, to pop back here, just to refresh your memory, we have these... Various numbers, you know, Ephraim's 40,000 and Manasseh 32,200 and Judah 74,600. You know, you go through all these numbers, right? Issachar does not have many, 4,400. You know, it, you get the numbers, okay? Now, I have this proposition that I want to challenge you with. My suggestion is there's nothing in the scripture that's there by accident. Everything there holds somehow a secret to be discovered. Now, I'll be candid if you I haven't discovered them all, I'm still at it. But. I've discovered enough to convince myself there's nothing trivial in the Scripture. Every number, every place name, and I'll speak idiomatically, every comma, is there by design. We're going to discover that in Isaiah later. Well, when you look at these numbers, you can play with those all you like. It's hard to see much, right? But let's put two ideas together. We know that the, those tribes clustered in groups of three to make camps. And these are the numbers of the camps, right? Right? You say, well, gee, that's very exciting, Chuck. What is that leading to? Well, let's take a look at this. That means the tabernacle's in the middle. To the, south, to the east, we have the lion of the tribe of Judah, Dan, ox, so forth, right? We're together. Got the eagle, ox, Ephraim, with 108,000, man, Reuben, 151. Now, what I want you to do with me in your mind's eye, and your imagination, you and I are going to get aboard a, jet, uh, a Bell Jet Ranger. And we're going to pick up off the Sinai wilderness, and we're going to fly over the camp of Israel. And now, oh, one other small point before I get into that. I'm going to argue, think like a rabbi. Let's take Judah. If Judah is going to camp east of the tabernacle, right, there is an area, probably square, that includes the tabernacle and the Levites. I've just represented that here by this square, right? If I'm due east of that, that's pretty obvious, I can camp as wide as that base is and consider myself east, right? If I move over to this region, right, you follow me? I'm northeast. If I move over here, I'm southeast, right? If I'm the eagle, Dan, to the north, I can be as long as I'm due north of the tabernacle, no problem. But if I move beyond the boundaries of the tabernacle either east or west. I'm, you know, northwest or northeast, aren't I? Do you follow what I'm saying? Well, with that in mind, I'm going to lift up on this jet ranger. We're going to fly over the Sinai Desert, and we're going to fly over the camp of Israel. And what we're going to do, you and I, we're going to arrange our approach that we're going to come in to the camp of Israel from the east. And if we realize that these are constrained by whatever the dimensions of the tabernacle, their length will be proportional to the size of those camps, which means that the shortest one is Ephraim, right, to the west. The longest one, 186,108, is Judah. Both Reuben, the camp of Reuben, the camp of Dan, are essentially 150,000 each. And the interesting thing is God looked down on the Sinai. If they were assembled properly, according to his word, he looked down upon a cross. That blow you away? That blew me away when I first perceived that. And I don't think I'm I'm, I'm quite serious about it. See, for these guys to spread themselves in these other areas, they no longer are are complying to the requirements of the Torah in Numbers 2 and 10. Follow me? And so that's what you come up with. has to be. Can you imagine? I can't imagine my wildest dreams that, that a rabbinical scholar of the Torah would bring that out can this proves, this proves conclusively that the book of Numbers was written after the New Testament. <laughs> and of course, obviously, I'm being facetious. The throne of God. When Israel followed the instructions that God gave him in the Torah, he could look down, not just at the tabernacle representing in all its symbolism, the person, work, and uh, mission, ...of Jesus Christ and His great redemptive work on your behalf and mine. More than that, we see the twelve tribes modeling, if you will, the throne of God... ...with the lion, the ox, the man, and the eagle... ...as represented in these bizarre idioms that we see uh, in Isaiah 6 and uh, Ezekiel 1 and 10 and Revelation 4, etc. But more than that, when we we include the numbers listed in the book of numbers by the way these are very understated because they only record men uh, uh, what is it 20 years and older that can go to war it doesn't include women and children and the rest so the actual numbers are much much larger uh, we're, not talking, you know, we're talking uh, probably over a million people and so these arms are pretty substantial I, I have no idea what, the, what allocation of space is for the tabernacle of the Levites but whatever it is it isn't that large because there weren't that many it's one tribe's worth right at most I mean you can go through the numbers yourself But whatever square it is, that has to be amplified. And whatever these numbers are, that's the proportion of the various wings of the the camp. And whenever God looked down, he saw in one glance his whole redemptive plan. And I think that's kind of wild. And that just leads me to the, the, the main conclusion that God's greatest work, his greatest achievement, is not the creation. How do I say that? Well, first of all, I can tell how important something is by how much space is devoted in the Bible. The creation has a couple of chapters in Genesis. It's got a couple of chapters in Job. It's got actually a chapter or two in Isaiah, a few Psalms. And by and large, that's about it, gang. Well, let's talk about the redemption that God has done. Well, gee, most of Genesis, you know... Abraham, calling of Abraham, all that stuff. That's all the redemption. Certainly the whole book of Exodus is the book of redemption. Passover, all of that. The book of Leviticus has all the detail: every ordinance, every offering, all those tedious ordinances. All speak of God's redemptive concept and His plan. Well, that's Leviticus, okay. Numbers and Deuteronomy, wilderness, wandering. Well, gee, on, on it goes, right? Certainly most of the Psalms, redemption. The prophets, boy, all the prophets. You get to the New Testament. Well, the Gospel, sure. And the Epistle, wait a minute. Whole book about the redemption. How much space is creation? Half a dozen chapters. How much redemption? Most of the book. There's another way to measure importance. What did the creation cost God? He called it into existence. Breathed it with the breath of his nostrils. Our equivalent expression might be, he snapped his fingers Is there, right? If you're a student of the creation, you wonder why did he have to take six days? Another way to measure importance is, what did it cost him? Let's talk about the redemption. What did the redemption cost God? More than you and I have any capacity of appreciating. Glibly we say it cost him his son, Jesus Christ. There are aspects of Jesus Christ that Jesus Christ gave up apparently for eternity. And we'll find out more about the, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in the book of Isaiah than you have any idea. We'll get there in good good time. The God of the universe. Not only created the universe, I don't mean just matter and energy, I mean time and space. Called it into existence. We call it the Big Bang. We're now discovering that we can measure it. It had a beginning. Scientists acknowledge that. God has revealed himself in the creation even to our secular scientists today. Anyone that still believes in evolution is just uninformed scientifically. So God, the creator of the universe... Anticipated the predicament that you and I would be in because he wants fellowship with you and I but he knew that there would be an incredible gap between us called sin. We have a sin problem. And the lengths to which he has gone to take care of the sin problem for the asking. In fact, the biggest problem we have is we find it difficult to accept the fact that he's done 100% of the job. He needs nothing from us other than our accepting it. In fact, he insists that he not be paid wages. If we contribute to it, then it's wages. If on the other hand, it's, a, it's he insists that it's a gift. He's done 100% of the job. He's, he's got a destiny for you and I that goes beyond our imagining, and it's there for the asking. And he demonstrates this by giving us a message system. 66 books written by 40 authors over assembled over thousands of years in which every detail every word every place name every subtlety of design from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 is there engineered skillfully carefully precisely mysteriously by a supernatural agency that we glibly call the Holy Spirit and every day we go by every time we turn a page every time we do a little digging we discover another treasure another secret another insight to realize that he has thought this all through from before before The world began. When did God first start dealing with you? Ephesians 1, 4 says, Before the foundation of the world. That's when he started dealing with you and me. Personally, individually. He knew the end from the beginning. And he demonstrates that every page we go, that his redemptive plan, this this strange, bizarre pattern that God has laid out for himself of redeeming you and I by the shed blood of his son on a cross, on a Roman cross, 1900 years ago. That God, by that cross, will judge the universe, judge the world. And we will be divided. And it won't be what you've done, good or bad. It'll be as your name written in a book. You'll go up there and someone will say, name, please. And is it in there? Yes or no? If it is, you've got no problems. He's taking care of it, all of it. Oh, sure, there's rewards if you've, been, you've done, done well and so forth. Let, there, are, there are opportunities, yes. But you're either in the book or not because he either knows you or he doesn't. You either know him or you don't. You've either fallen on the stone or it'll crush you. Because when it says, name please, and your name isn't there, hey, it's over. You've had your chance. It's, I want to see your boss. Oh, it's too late. He was with you. Interesting.
0: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry.